You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Oh, Father, we know that it is indeed finished and all is well. We pray that in this morning hour you would exalt your son, Jesus. We also desperately need him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. I'm sure many of you have been asked a question before or maybe you thought, in your own mind, if I could travel in time and meet three figures or observe three events in history, what would I like to see and whom would I like to meet? Uh, Maybe Pickett's Charge or the Invasion of Normandy. I've always been intrigued by the buildings of the pyramids. How in the world did they pull all of that off? An afternoon with Abraham Lincoln, maybe Cicero. It's, It's a fun kind of imaginative exercise. And of course, many of us would be compelled, and I think rightly so, to say Jesus Christ. As an evening ritual this week, our family has been watching The Chosen. It's, it's a new dramatization of the life of Jesus, and it was being, it's being live-streamed on, on YouTube. I have mixed feelings about these kinds of imaginative series, truth be told, but it's been a good experience for our family with some really moving moments. But if I was pressed into a corner, it would be hard for me to pull the Jesus trigger when playing this imaginative game depending, of course, on how the rules would have to go, I think I would especially be slow to go back to the time of Jesus if it meant I had to go back as someone from that period in time. In other words, I couldn't take with me what I believe and confess to be true now. I think if that were the case, I would certainly probably say, no, I'll take that afternoon meeting with Abraham Lincoln. Because if we read the Gospels closely, it's hard not to come to a conclusion Being close to Jesus Christ made it hard to believe. In fact, Jesus Christ himself seems to make it hard to believe, teaching in parables, asking people to pick up crosses and follow him. In fact, and I realize what I'm about to say here treads on some thin ice, but I think Jesus may have been somewhat disappointing. In fact, in certain respects, I know he would have been. Do you remember what Isaiah the prophet told us so long ago, perhaps his warning to us? He has no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. There's nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Jesus doesn't play by the rules of history's heroic games. For example, 150-ish years before Jesus Christ, the great Judas Maccabeus led a stunning and successful revolt against the great Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus was trying to force Greek religious ideals on the Jews in Palestine, and and here comes Judas Maccabeus with his small group of of guerrilla resistance fighters, and they, they overcame the great Seleucid powers. In doing so, he liberated Jerusalem and, and dedicated the temple once again to the service of the Lord. Judas Maccabeus will go down in history as one of the greatest of Israel's resistance leaders, a true hero. And every Hanukkah celebration whispers his memory even to this day. Now that's impressive. Judas Maccabeus. Maccabeus means hammer. He's the original hammer. He would certainly not disappoint. Here's another example for us. About 100 years after Jesus of Nazareth, another resistance fighter arises in Judah. His name was Simon bar Kozabah. This charismatic leader actually had a claim, a legitimate claim, to be a Messiah because he could trace his lineage all the way back to King David. 
There was a lot of buzz around Simon bar In fact, the great rabbi of the time, Akava, changed Simon's name from Simon bar to Simon bar which means son of the star. That, that's a messianic title. Simon bar Now, he's the stuff of military legends, a kind of Herculean figure from Israel's troubled history with Rome. People praised his physical strength and his military genius. Bar Kokhba had apparently a magnetic personality that was able to lead throngs of volunteers in guerrilla warfare against Hadrian's Roman armies. In fact, in the 1960s, they discovered Jewish coins in the caves of the Judean desert from this period of Bar Kokhba, and the coins had stamps on them that said, Redemption in Zion, Freedom for Israel, Simon, Prince of Israel. You know, Bar Kokhba eventually died at the hands of the Romans, and in many ways he was the last, I guess we could say, failed Messiah in, of Israel's history. But what a man! He, he would not have disappointed. That's why I think we may expect more from Jesus than what we get. Give us the great Achilles or Judas Maccabeus, because they, they fit my picture of how things should be, where real conquest can be found. But again, Isaiah the prophet warned us. He told us, He was despised and rejected by humanity. He was a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Our Palm Sunday celebration leans pretty hard into these dynamics of frustrated expectations. Palm Sunday and Passion Sunday are now flip sides of the same coin for us. Every year, we gather together on this Lord's Day to remember the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ and his passion on the cross together in one Sunday. In a sense, the effect of our Palm Sunday celebration today is to thrust us almost violently into the tensions of Holy Week, from Hosanna in the highest to a bloodied cross all wrapped up in one Sunday together. So today we've already heard us celebrate Jesus' royal entry into Jerusalem as the long-awaited king of the Jews. He's the Messiah, the one who's bringing the kingdom of God in his wake. And today we see that same triumphal king stretched out in utter humiliation to die. It's really almost unthinkable, and it leaves us today with a haunting question as we move into Holy Week. Oh, Jesus, who exactly are you? If one looks closely, even Jesus' royal entry into Jerusalem, it doesn't play by the rules. Jesus is accompanied by by no armies. There's no guerrilla fighters hiding among the crowds. He rides no war steed, but mounts a simple donkey, a beast of burden. The difference between, say, Jesus' triumphal entry and and a Roman triumphal parade uh, with its snorting war horses couldn't be more stark. It's as if Jesus' actions here in his triumphal entry are saying, haven't you read Zechariah the prophet? Don't you remember his promise? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Zechariah said so long ago. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. And listen to these words, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah the prophet told us that the salvation of God would arrive with the humility of their new king. It was always God's intent for the kings of Israel to operate with with humility in their office. 
The old adage that power corrupts and, and absolute power corrupts absolutely has centuries of evidence to support its truth. This is why Moses, back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, warned the future kings of Israel not to amass large amounts of treasures or large herds of horses, but to keep a copy of God's law close to them and to read it regularly. And the whole history of Israel and their kings is an absolute mess because so few attended to this Mosaic instruction. And here this morning, we're together, following King Jesus, mounted on a donkey, adorned with humility and operating in absolute reliance on his Father by the Holy Spirit. Admittedly, it may be a bit disappointing when we compare this scene to the surrounding nations, say to the Egyptians or to the Romans, but but it's all going according to plan. Jesus is the king that Israel and the world so desperately needs, a king who operates in humility, one who demonstrates his power by complete devotion to the Father's will. And most importantly, the power of Jesus' divine humility is intent in its focus to save us and to redeem us. It's an intent that cannot and will not be stopped. And if we follow Jesus closely this morning, we'll see the whole universe turned upside down. Because in the span of a few days, the humility of Jesus in his triumphal procession leads to his utter humiliation on the cross. You will feel the force of this when we hear Matthew's account of Jesus' crucifixion read for us later in this morning's service. Jesus, the king of the universe, stands before this backwater Roman governor named Pilate. I mean, his name would be lost in the dust of history if it weren't for his connection with Jesus Christ. And here Pilate is standing as judge and executor of the very creator of the world. It's humiliating. The crowds then cheer for Barabbas. They cry out for Jesus to be crucified. The soldiers mock him as a failed king of the Jews, forcing him to wear a fake crown and a royal robe. Jesus Christ becomes the object of their schoolboy pranks. I mean, the whole scene is grotesquely embarrassing. The very people that Jesus weeps over, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, his own people, They deride him with words that are so cruel, it's really hard to imagine. Remember, Jesus is dying on a cross, naked and in pain before the whole world to see. And here they come, wagging their tongues. You who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Can we put it in our terms? These people are saying, who's the big shot now? The priests and the elders, they join in. If he comes down off that cross, we'll believe he's the son of God. And even the petty thieves that are on his right and his left join in the, rid- in the ridiculing banter. The whole scene reeks of the worst kind of public humiliation. Naked, suffering, mocked, reviled, rejected by humanity. In Matthew's account, the account that we're about to hear read, this is heavy. The last thing that we hear Jesus say is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the dagger in the scene. Now we know that there's more from the other gospels. John, for example, ends with the great, it is finished. Luke has Jesus dying with the words, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. But Matthew, oh, the horror of it, frankly, Matthew has Jesus dying with the cry of dereliction as the last words on Jesus' lips 
He experiences the abandonment of God. He cries out with a loud voice and then he dies. It is very weighty. The scene leaves no doubt for you and for me that Jesus is suffering the judgment of God by means of God's own abandonment of his son. Indeed, the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all, and we're, we're watching it in Matthew's gospel. But Matthew's gospel has another feature in it that no other gospel account has. It's wild. I, I don't know how else to explain the scene. I, I have a colleague of mine at Beeson who describes this passage as the thriller passage of the Bible. For those of you who will remember Michael Jackson's hit from the early 80s, Listen to these words. You'll hear them read again this morning. At that moment, namely the moment of Jesus' death, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rock split, and buckle your seatbelts here, the tombs broke open, the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. What? I mean, this is nuts. And there's so little that's spoken about it in the rest of the Bible, but we get three verses of a scene that can only be described as a foretaste of the end of the world, the resurrection of the dead. The humiliating suffering of Jesus on the cross where humanity admittedly stands frustrated and discouraged because this is certainly no scene of conquest. How could it be? is in fact, according to Matthew, the very unlocking of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven upon earth. All things are in fact being made new. And to prove it, Matthew tells us, Uncle Raptavia, who died a decade ago, just visited us for lunch. The promised age of the resurrection of the dead has broken into time. Can these bones live, Ezekiel? Can the dry bones scattered throughout the whole valley of death, can they live, Ezekiel? Prophesy over them, Ezekiel. Speak forth my word over these dead bones and tell them that I, the sovereign and life-giving God of Israel, can take things that are dead and can make them alive again, Ezekiel. Tell them that. Tell these dead bones, Ezekiel, that I'm going to speak life into them. And in what has to be admittedly one of the most um, funny passages in the Bible, we hear Ezekiel say, and there was a rattling sound. Clank, 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 as ribs attached to sternum and a, and a whole company of skeletal forms now stand to attention. It's, it's, it's a bizarre scene. And before the scene is over, lifeless bones become an army of living and animated humanity. Can these dry bones live, Ezekiel? And listen to how Ezekiel the prophet so long ago explains the scene of the valley of dry bones because this scene is going to unlock for us what's happening in Matthew. This is what Ezekiel said. This is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel, and then you, my people, and hear this, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. When the graves open up, Ezekiel said, then you will know that I am the Lord. And this is exactly what happens in Matthew. The next few verses say this, when the centurion 
And those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquakes and all the crazy things that were happening. They were terrified and they exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. They knew that Jesus was the very Lord of the universe, the Son of God, the creator of the world, the one who holds life and death in his hands. He's not Judas Maccabeus fending off the Greeks. He's not Bar Kokhba striving against the fierce Romans. He's so much more. He's the one who in his death brings everlasting life. He's the one who in his death overcomes the power and the grip and the fear of death itself. He's making everything new. I know that we all feel the uncertainty of our time and our future. The curtain's been pulled back on us as a society and even as a church. I know it has for me. But the graves opened up when Jesus died. And people who were dead visited their families. It's an unnerving scene, admittedly, but it's a foretaste, a down payment for you and for me for the fulfillment of our wildest and most hopeful dreams, the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. This morning with the centurion, what else can we say? Surely he was the son of God. Now, O Lord, seal these words upon our hearts, set our affections upon them, give give us hope in the midst of this moment, that you indeed are the very Son of God who holds life and death in your hands. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.